Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History, and I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome in. Today we're going to be talking about Francois Duvalier, better known as Papa Doc, also known as the Voodoo Tyrant. Now, if you listen to the first Living Let Die episode, we talked about the inspiration for Mr. Big. Mr. Big being a 1970s New York Harlem drug dealer, drug kingpin. Uh, we talked about race relations. We talked about a whole bevy of, of topics. That was Mr. Big's side. Now we're going to talk about the Dr. Kananga side and who the inspiration for Dr. Kananga was. Dr. Kananga was a, a well-tailored, suit-wearing, proper gentleman who used voodoo and barren semity to rule his people. Francois Duvalier is a well-tailored, suit-wearing uh, dictator who uses voodoo and barren semity to rule over his people in, uh, in, uh, in Haiti. Now, Haiti used to be called Saint-Dominique, Saint-Monique. I mean, it, it's clearly, Dr. Kananga is Papa Doc, so it's going to be a really fun off topic to get, discuss, and we're going to get right into it. So without further ado, we're going to get right into today's topic. Francois Duvalier, Papa Doc, the voodoo tyrant, Dr. Kananga, let's do this! Wearing a well-tailored suit, dark-rimmed Coke bottle glasses, and a top hat, Francois Duvalier accepted his overwhelming presidential victory in 1957 in the small Caribbean nation of Haiti. This small, demure man of intellect and ideals, born of poverty, just inaugurated as president of Haiti. The army, the journalists, the ruling mulatto class, and the impoverished alike fell victim to the lore of this man. In what was supposed to be a turning point in the change in Haiti, an ushering in in noirism will now be turned into one of the most deadly and oppressive regimes the world will ever know. Francois Duvalier, born on the 14th of April, 1907, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, to Duval Duvalier and Yurita Abraham, a school teacher and a baker, respectively. Although born of poverty, Duvalier excelled in school and graduated from the University of Haiti School of Medicine. He worked as a staff position at the hospital before spending a year at the University of Michigan studying medicine as part of a program designed to fight yaws, typhus, and malaria. Haiti at the time was being ravaged by yaws. Yaws is a tropical disease that deforms the body and affects bones, cartilage, and joints in addition to the skin. Yaws is a bacterial disease which with antibiotics is fairly simple to treat. After Duvalier returned to Haiti, armed with penicillin, he began going to the Haitian countryside and treating the locals. In the 1940s, Haiti was still deeply entrenched in the religion of voodoo. Voodoo is the mix of Catholicism and African tribal religion. Bondier being the most important of the gods, he is the creator of all. No human can see nor speak to him. He is all-powerful. Instead, there are a series of loa that serve as intermediaries between humanity and Bondier. One such loa is the ruler of the dead, Baron Samity will come up several times in connection between Kananga and Duvalier. This work that Duvalier did hiking in the rural area of Haiti would prove essential to his political future. To the people he cured, it was not just medicine, but magic. He was yielding to cure them. In voodoo, those who yield power can either do so with the right or left hand, as they say. If one uses the right hand, it is being done with good. 
if with the left it is being done with evil. These rural villagers saw Duvalier and using some form of magic to cure them. It was from this work that Duvalier became known as Papa Doc, a nickname that he would revel in himself. If you ever see Yaz, it's actually a pretty um, deforming, deforming disease. If you watch what it does to the skin, to the joints, to the face, it can leave people with hideous uh, disfigurements. So armed with penicillin, which again is, is, was a pretty basic cure that was ravaging most of these tropical countries. And the reason that Duvalier got to Michigan is that he was part of a program. He actually won like a scholarship and got sent there and went to Ann Arbor for like a year. So while in the United States, Duvalier not only learned medicine, but he also studied ideologies. He was enthralled by Machiavelli and Marx. When he returned to Haiti, he became active in noirism, or black nationalism. This is a feeling that the lighter-skinned mulattoes, who were the ruling class at the time, despite being small in number. The belief in noirism is that institutions put in place in Haiti by the mulatto class are exclusively there to keep black majority powerless. This was especially true after the occupation of U.S. forces in 1914 to 1934. A reoccurring theme you see it again today. Now, you know, BLM movement is basically noirism. It went all the way back to the 1940s in Haiti. It's basically conflict theory. It is all offshoots of uh, Marxism, of Machiavelli, of socialism. Instead of just using the ruling class, they just use race instead. So noirism was a, a, was a big topic in the, late, in, in the late 1930s in Haiti. So around the time of 1914, it was this time that the U.S. was worried about German occupation in the Caribbean during World War I. The U.S. used Haiti as a place to ensure their interests were held in the Caribbean. From 1911 to 1914, seven Haitian presidents were assassinated, and Haiti owed a significant amount of money to U.S. banks. The growing threat of German occupation in the area was a factor for the U.S. as well. In response, Woodrow Wilson sent the U.S. Marines to the area to try and maintain some sort of order in the region. The occupation was one that was not welcomed by the people. The U.S. Marines were less than happy to be there, and they had a less than human view of the local Haitians that were occupying the area. By the time the U.S. left, there was great resentment towards them. Duvalier was born and raised in this time, and grew to hate the U.S. as well. Being part of the urban educationalist, he prescribed to noirism greatly, and used it to his main platform to win election in 1957. Haiti has a long history of colonization, first initially by the French. Initially, Haiti was Haiti and the Dominican Republic were one nation called Hispaniola. In 1697, Spain ceded the western half of the island to the French. The French then renamed the island Saint-Dominique. Sounds an awful lot like San Monique, right? From there, it became the wealthiest colony of the French Empire. Mainly, coffee and sugar were grown there. By the 1780s, nearly 40% of all the sugar imported by Britain and France and 60% of the world's coffee came from Haiti. At one time, Saint-Domingue produced more wealth than all of North America. And this is a quote from the nationsonline.org backslash one world uh, Haiti history. So the African slave labor became vital to Saint-Domingue. Economic development. Slaves arrived by the tens of thousands as coffee and sugar production boomed. Under French colonial rule, nearly 800,000 slaves arrived from Africa, accounting for a third of the entire Atlantic slave trade. Many died from disease and the harsh conditions of sugar and coffee plantations. Statistics show that there were a complete turnover in the slave population every 20 years. Despite these losses, by 1789, slaves outnumbered the free population 4 to 1, 452,000 slaves in a population of 520,000. By the mid-18th century, Saint-Dominique, Society had settled into a rigid hierarchical structure based on skin color, class, and wealth. 
at the bottom of the societal ladder were the African-born plantation slaves. Slightly above them were the Creole slaves who were born in the New World and spoke the French Creole dialect. The two next highest rungs were made up of mixed-faced mulatto slaves and the affranchise or mulatto freedmen, respectively. Whites constituted the top of the social structure, but were broadly divided between the lower-ranking shopkeeper and smallholder class, les petits blancs, and the high-ranking plantation owners, wealthy merchants, and high officials, grands blancs. That was just a good quote, just kind of explain what the makeup of Haiti was at the time. As time went on, the mulatto class and the free black class began to demand citizenship and the rights to own slaves themselves. This led to civil unrest, and as the French were dealing with their own revolution, their grip on the colonies were slipping. So the mulattoes and the lighter-skinned blacks were fighting to be able to own blacks themselves, because that's how you made money in Haiti, was to own land and then to have slaves to make to farm and to make this coffee and to make these uh, sugars that you could sell to the to the uh, to the West. In 1791, Toussaint Levatour commanded a rebel army of black slaves who led a rebellion against the French. After years of fighting the French, his army, along with the alliance he made in the area and continued to fight in Europe, led to Louvatour and his gang expelling the French from the island. Haiti became the first former slave colony to gain their independence in 1803. Following the gaining of their independence, one of Louvatour's generals became president. He lasted only two years before he was assassinated, and it was a very grim uh, assassination. He was basically um, dismembered and fed to pigs. This began the power struggle in Haiti, and to this day has never been resolved. Assassinations, military coups, class warfare between mulattoes and blacks have plagued the country since its inception. This repeated process continued for over 150 years. That is until Papa Doc came to power. Haiti was in flux. Papa Doc had been part of the political regime years prior, but still was relatively inexperienced at politics. What he did know from his time hiking medicine to the rural areas of Haiti was how to speak to the black majority in the country. The platform of noirism against his mulatto opponents resonated with the people, and he took office in 1957. The platform of noirism against his mulatto opponent resonated with the people when he took office. Noirism is basically, same thing, um, it is basically just conflict theory, race theory, conflict race theory, critical race theory. It's all packaged under one, bi- it, whatever branding it is. So they're using it as race in Haiti. It's being used now in race in the U.S., it's being used, it's been, it's been used everywhere. It's all it is, is just socialism or communism, just branded differently. So if you, instead of you substituting the ruling class warfare, you basically just say um, race, and you use the same principles and concepts that you would for socialism. You just exchange race for class. That, that's, all, that's all it is. It's, it's been a reoccurring theme since um, the Communist Manifesto was first published. Duvalier was a smart man. And he looked around at what was going on in the world. He looked at Stalin. He looked at Mao Zedong in China. He looked at all these communist nations that were coming up, and he saw how he could get to power. And he understood now how the rural Haitians felt. He understood how the blacks felt. He understood what colonialism had done to Haiti. He understood the feelings of the occupation of the U.S. time. He understood, and he was reading Machiavelli. He was reading Stalin. He was reading what happened with Mao Zedong. And he looked at these, and he thought, this is the way to power. Whereas Mao Zedong, Stalin, Lenin, these were ideals. I think Papa Doc was selfish. He didn't believe in him. He didn't, just as he didn't really believe in voodoo, he didn't really believe in communism, he didn't really believe in noirism. These were a means to an end. He definitely did like Machiavelli, though, because he, he ruled by the teachings of that. But I don't think he was an idealist. 
I don't think that he was out there to try to help people or try to bring this new ideal that he thought was going to be really good for the nation. I think he really just saw this as his means to power. He saw how it was working throughout the world. He looked at the teaching of Stalin. He looked at how Mao Zedong came to power. So this was his means to an end. It wasn't he didn't he wasn't he wasn't an idealist. He was just a narcissist. Papadoc was elected on September 22nd and inaugurated on October 22nd. 22 became his lucky number. Once in office, though, Papadoc's promise quickly fell through. The military during his election backed him, and they thought that he would be a puppet for them. This was another tactic that you got from Stalin, that you got from Machiavelli, that you got from Mao Zedong, is that you don't show people what your true intentions are, you don't show them your true capabilities until you actually have the power, and then, because you don't want to be seen as too much of a threat, you got to play politics, but once you have the power, then you can unleash it. And if you look at Papadoc, he's just this small, little, meager man with these Coke bottle glasses, he has, he just walks frail. He just looks so frail. And then you hear the stories and you hear what he actually was. I can see how they would think that, no, he's okay. He's not going to be a, a, a dictator or have any of these bad thoughts. And then he gets in office and he just completely does a 180. In Haiti, its leaders came and went often. The real power really lied with the military. Papadoc knew this and he quickly began reassigning or retiring military leaders. Of the previous 36 presidents, 23 were either killed or overthrew. I mean, that's not a great success rate. <laughs> I don't know. Basically, it's the two most dangerous jobs in the world are being a Haitian president and uh, being married to Amber Heard. Is that too soon? It might be too soon. Hey. But this was the way of life in Haiti, and Papa Doc was determined not to let that be his fate. After taking office, Papa Doc put Clement Barbeau as his main enforcer. The military was powerful in Haiti. And it was determined that the only way to fight a potential coup was to have a special force loyal to Papa Doc. He created a special enforcement squad and gave them free reign to do as they pleased, as long as they were loyal to him. This group became known as the Tontomoku. Now, the Tontomoku is um, an ogre in Creole language. They were fierce. They were violent. They were made up of the most ruthless that Haiti had to offer. Within weeks of being elected, these Tonton Makuts jailed hundreds of Papadoc's enemies. Later, it was claimed by Barbeau that more than 300 of Papadoc's enemies were killed in the first few months of office. This quickly set the tone for the presidency. As his reign grew more violent, his discrepancy and arbitration in the killings became more frequent. It was not easy, however, to pay for these forces. The Tonton Makuts were expensive, and with funds drying up, Papadoc had to look elsewhere for his funds. In 1959, Papadoc was gifted the gift of Cuba and Castro. With Castro's revolution succeeding and the growing perceived threat of the Soviet Union, Papadoc made a power play with the United States. Fearing another Caribbean nation would fall to communism, the United States agreed to pay Papadoc $50 million in aid to help sway him from siding with the Soviets. As this is so often the case, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We talked about it in the last episode in Sin Low. We talked about it in... I, I probably, we've probably had the same theme. I would say over half of my podcast episodes, basically the history is the, of the same thing. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even though if it doesn't matter, if they're good to the people, as long as they're good to our interest, then it's okay. And it's a common occurrence, and it happens over and over again. Colonialism along with monarchies, led to most of these countries that went to communism, going to communism. It happened in, in China. China was dealing with the same thing. We talked about the opium wars. We talked about all the colonization that was happening in China, along with a long-standing emperor and dynasty 
eventually the people want some kind of power. They want some kind of voice. They've been squashed by foreigners. They've been squashed by their own governments. And this it comes in and, and is, it's, it's saving grace, right? It always seems to be the case. Papa Doc did not use the $50 million to help his people. He instead used, he funded it to, funded the Tauntaun Makuts. He also got the latest in weaponry and started Duvalierville. Now Duvalierville, I know, it's just Papa Doc land, like, yeah, just, it's, it's so, it's such a, what a, what, what telling of a personality it is that you feel the need to make an entire town in your honor. This is like the ultimate selfie, right? This is the, this is the power play, right? This is before Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner's got nothing, all right? On Duvalier. Yeah, you take your selfie and your makeup. I'm building a whole town, bitch. Move over, Kardashians. Until you have a Kardashianville, recognize the real gang. I got Duvalierville. But Duvalierville never actually came to fruition, and it remains a, a living legacy of the voodoo tyrant. Around this time, Papa Doc had a massive heart attack and nearly died. When he recovered and took power, he was more emboldened, more brazen than ever. He spoke of how he was the voodoo loa, Baron Samity. He even began to dress like Baron Samity to reflect his perception of him. He began wearing a Hamburg hat, a bow tie, a blazer with coattails, and many of the depictions of Baron Samity have him. If you watch, if you look at how he dresses, and if, you, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll show you pictures, but if you're wa- listening to the podcast and want to go check out the YouTube, I suggest you do that, and I suggest you just try. But if you're not, if you're just going to listen to the podcast, go ahead and Google um, Francois Duvalier or Papa Doc right now, and look how he started dressing around the 1960s. It is a direct reflection of Baron Samity. So who is Baron Samity? Now, I love Jeffrey Holder's performance as Baron Samity, and my number one wish for going forward if they're ever going to redo anything, I want to see Baron Samity come back as a character, modernize him, and give him a bigger role than he had. I love this character. It's one of my favorite characters. It's one of my biggest disappointments that he's not more in the movie. And that part where he falls into the snakes, and that's all it is. It's like this weak sword fight, and then he throws in the snakes, and he's done. But then he comes back at the end on the train. That part is so awesome. So awesome. <laughs> I know. I used to scare my kid with that. Because <laughs> he, he thought the zombie was like the coolest part too So when we would use the Funko Pops every once in a while We'd play at night And he would be James Bond and I'd have to be the characters So Odd Job would throw the hat And and that's how we played in his bed And then, and then we would use um, uh, Blowfield would be the cat Yeah, I know, this, this is my life And then uh, and then Baron Samity would just, I'd take him and I'd hide him behind like my kid's head and be, <laughs> he thought it was fun and scary at the same time. I had fun. Yeah. Fun of being a dad, right? I think my laugh is pretty good too. I know I, I do too many impressions on this podcast. I know I do way too many, but <laughs> I think it's one of my best ones. I don't know, whatever. So who is Baron Samity? Baron Samity is Loa of the Dead. He appears in Haitian culture as the person that ushers the dead into the underworld. Baron Samity is smooth, stylish, and he's sinister. Samity is most often portrayed wearing a top hat with a cane and jacket with coattails. He dresses this way because while he's married to Grand Brigitte, who is a loa in her own right, Baron Samity pursues mortal women as well. What a scamp, you know? There he is. He's got a goddess for a wife. He's out there hooking up with hood rats. It's true Kanye style. You know, could have me a good girl and still be addicted to them hood rats. And I just blame everything on you. 
let you know that's what I'm good at. And you got to sing. You got an impression and a song within like two minutes. Boom. Quantum of history. Best podcast ever, right? I don't know why you're still here. It's going to... Only a little bit longer. Only a little bit longer. Just stick with me. Baron 70 is renowned as a lover of drink, debauchery, and the company of women. His favorite indulgences are rum and tobacco. And in many artist depictions of Baron, he is surrounded in plumes of smoke and glasses of rum. He's like a Haitian Luke Taggart. The word Samedi in French translates to Saturday. Saturday is considered Baron's day to party the hardest. While he does party on nearly all days, Baron despises people who take their lives too seriously. Being the bearer of the afterlife and the usherer of death, he is said to have the power to cure all mortal ailments if he finds good cause to do so. It's part of the reason why when Papa Doc or Duvalier was walking in the hills of rural Haiti and curing Yaz with penicillin, you know, that mysticism of him as he cured these diseases was basically how he got to feed him, that he himself was Baron Samedi, that he was yielded voodoo, that he was part of it, and that's one of the part of the lore that he kept perpetuating throughout his career. When Baron comes down into the world of living, he wears glasses to have one lens on and one lens out. He does this so that while he can come out and enjoy his time with the mortal world while keeping an eye on the realm of the dead. In the movie Live and Let Die, the theme of Baron Samedi being unable to be killed is played. He appears to die on occasion, only return sitting on the train at the end of the movie. It is believed that when a new cemetery is created, the first male that is buried in the cemetery comes back as Baron Samedi himself, and the first female becomes Grand Bajit. And in this reasoning, Baron Samedi never goes away. He just reincarnates himself over and over again. It's another reason that Papa Doc, having already been thought to have a mystique about him, used this idea and this image of Baron Samedi to his advantage. With Papa Doc's knowledge of both voodoo and the role it plays with the rural Haiti, he was believed by many to actually be Baron Samedi. As he recovered from his illness, he was even more paranoid. In his absence and recovering from his heart attack, with the help of a team of doctors, he became more brutal than ever. In 1961, Papa Doc held an election, even though his term would not end until 1963. In one of the biggest farce elections, Papa Doc won by 13 million votes, claiming that not one single Haitian voted against him. This was the end for JFK and their support. JFK began having his aides look into a transition to remove Papa Doc from office. The aid money reduced significantly from 15 million in 1961 to 1.5 million. Papa Doc in his speeches claimed that the United States was racist and that that's why the money was being held. The end was coming for Papa Doc and the U.S. looked to rid Haiti of Papa Doc when tragedy happened. On November 22, 1963, JFK was assassinated. Papa Doc took credit for the assassination, again being his favorite number of number 22. He claimed that it was his mysticism that caused him to die and his work of voodoo, that he was the reason that JFK was assassinated. The Johnson administration came in and took over for JFK and did not wish to continue on JFK's endeavor. There was a plan hatched by Barbeau to kidnap Papa Doc's children and force him to resign. One of the male fail, many failed coup attempts, this one had their chauffeur and bodyguards shot and killed, but the children managed to escape. After this incident, Papa Doc rained down hellfire on anyone he thought could be against him. Sending the Tauntaun Maku out, women, children, advisories were without good reason, nor a trial, murdered, and their houses burned. Papa Doc would hold public executions and televise them for the nation to see. He would leave dead bodies rotting in the streets. On one occasion, the rotting dead body of an advisory was placed outside the airport 
as a warning to anyone who wished to come and try to go against him. A cruise ship was attempting to port in Haiti when numerous locals tried to board the ship and beg for food and supplies. They were all shot and killed, as it was deemed embarrassing and against the narrative that Haiti was flourishing to have these peasants seek help. The cruise ship was horrified at the grisly sight of this mass murder. There were stories how Poppy Doc ordered the killing of a rival, and as the Tantan Makuts approached, a black dog ran out of the house. In voodoo, a black dog is significant because it's believed that a shapeshifter or a werewolf-type creature. The target of the attack was not found, and as such, Papa Doc ordered that all black dogs on the island be killed. Barbeau was leader in Papa Doc's absence, and Papa Doc's paranoia grew to believe Barbeau was planning a coup. Barbeau was sent to jail and remained there for 16 months. Papa Doc ordered the decapitated heads of his adversaries be brought to him so that he could, so that he could interrogate the severed heads. He had torture chambers adjacent to the room of his office where he could watch torturous interrogations from the comfort of his office. It was all about fear. Papa Doc idolized Machiavelli. And the most famous uh, quote from Machiavelli is, it's better to be feared than loved. For Papa Doc, this was his obsession. By 1970, Duvalier knew that his health was fading fast. He began bringing his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, to events and grooming him to be his successor. In true Papa Doc fashion, he changed the Constitution from having to be 40 years old to be president to having to be 18 and held a sham election to ensure that his son was elected and took over. On the 21st of April, 1971, Francois Duvalier passed away peacefully in his home of natural causes. By estimation, during his 14-year reign, Papa Doc accounted for 30,000 deaths on the small island nation. He ran Haiti into isolation in the deepest form of poverty in the Western Hemisphere. His impact is still felt today in Haiti, and they have yet to recover from the damage done from him. While Haiti has never been a pillar of stability, the culture of fear, death, murder, and theatrical killing was never more prevalent than it was in his 14-year reign of the man known as the voodoo tyrant. So I know we talk a lot in this podcast about different things. Um, we talk a lot about socialism. We talk a lot about critical race theory. We talk a lot about these theories that come in. And the reason we talk about it, in, in addition to what James Bond's podcast, is because that's what James Bond was built for. He was put on this earth to fight communism, to fight the Cold War, to fight the Russians. You know, Ian Fleming loathed Russians. You could tell in, in his writings. He loathed Russia. He loathed communism. And James Bond, as such, was sent to fight these things. He was supposed to be the ultimate weapon against communism, against socialism, against marketism. And we see it, and we talk about it in, in an episode like this, where I get the allure of socialism and communism. I do. I understand it, especially why these countries did. You look at Mao Zedong in China. You look at Lenin and Stalin in Russia. You look at Haiti, look at Cuba. You look at all these things. Is that they suffer from the fact that there was years of imperialism, right? There is nations being exploited by the West at the time. So these foreign nations come in. We talked a lot in the uh, um, Tomorrow Never Dies episode. We talked about the Hong Kong transfer. We talked about the war, the Opium Wars in China, where China thought that they were um, the biggest, baddest kingdom, and then they get destroyed in military battle. And then Britain goes in and takes all their their resources on the along the, the coastline on Hong Kong. And they go up the river, and the French get in there, and the Americans get in there, and the Italians get in there. Before you know it, there's all sorts of occupied forces. Same thing happened in Haiti in 1914. When the U.S. came in and they occupied it recently, or it was a French colony for a long time, 
this ne- the addition, the combination of monarchy, of oppression from your own government, and from imperialism from the West, of exploitation. You're getting exploited from two means. And then you have this theory that comes along and says, no, you are the, the it's not that you are not, you are the ruling class. You are. You far exceed the people who are at the top. You far exceed the elites in number. You have the power because the elites need you. And I get how the allure, I get all of that. I understand that. I understand how you how you vote for it, how it's, you know, most of the time these movements are from youth movements who haven't actually gone out. They've been sheltered by their parents. They've been sheltered by reality. They don't understand what it's like to actually go out there and do things on your own. And you have this idea that says if we just all work together and we have one big team, it's all going to work out. And I get why that's seductive. I get why that works. But it just never works. It never works because eventually you have to do the work. You have to. You have to do the work. I always compare it to weight loss. So if you prescribe, if you believe in socialism, you're basically the fact that you think that the reason why you're fat or the reason why you're obese is because you don't have access to gyms or you don't have access to private chefs or you don't have the, the best nutrition. That's why. You don't have, it's a lack of access. So if you were to take away the nice gyms from the elites and take away the, the personal chefs and the, and the high-end grocery stores and we all just had mediocre stuff, then we would all be fit and we'd all be better off for it. My argument is that if you were to put a gym on every corner, every corner of this thing, you give everybody gym, free gym memberships, and you have a personal chef on every block that goes and cooks for the entire block, I would argue that there would still be obesity. Because at the end of the day, you have to do the work. You can give everybody everything. But at the same point, something in you has to just go and do the work. You can't just be handed everything because it doesn't work that way. And there is, there's, but the other thing on the same coin, there are truths to that. There are truths to that there are way too many McDonald's in poverty areas. There are way too much fast food. And gyms can be expensive. All right? There, there are truths to all that. There are lack of access. There are barriers to success. There are barriers to all that stuff. It is so true. And it's true in econ- economics and it's true in fitness and like that. There, there are truths to that. But to, to say that you need to take away everything from everyone and de-incentivize everything, give yourself over to a state, and then expect the state to do the things for you that's supposed to be good. It's never worked. And it, look at the, the, the dictators. Look at Papa Doc or Francois de Valier. He lived lavishly in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Right? He was one of the few that actually, actually lived lavishly in his country. Uh, no wealth. But he lived lavishly. He had the nicest suits. He had everything at his disposal. You know? Is it ever going to work? Are you gonna ever going to entrust somebody to just be beneficent all the time? Some government that's probably not run by the best leaders, the best economists, the best anything. They just be, got into power for other means. They were good negotiators. It's not It's not how it works. And that's, that's why I love history so much. That's why I love James Bond so much. That's why I love doing this podcast because you get to see all these things in real life. You get to see what this actually, the actual implementation of ideas are, how they've worked in history and what the outcomes have always been. Kobe Broccoli always said, James Bond lives five minutes in the future. And it's so true. And if I could get five minutes with Jane Seymour's boobs in this movie, I would do it. I would, if I could make it five minutes, it'd be amazing. If, if I made it five minutes, self high five, but I doubt 
how I'm making five minutes with that. She's amazing. Anyways, thank you so much. This has been Quantum of History. This has been Papa Doc Francois Duvalier, the voodoo tyrant, along with a little bit of history on Baron Samity. Thank you guys so much for coming in. If you're not a subscriber, subscribe. Follow me on YouTube. Follow me on podcast. Follow me on IG at Quantum of History. Thank you guys so much. To stay positive out there. And uh, look forward to the next episode. Like what you saw, then hit that subscribe button. Comment down below. And leave a like in the... And hit that subscribe button. Why are you not hitting that subscribe button?